This is the current federal tax developments for the week of August the 1st, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and we're going to be talking this week about a few things that have happened here in the area of federal taxes. First, we're going to take a look at the proposed Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. I want to discuss both about the chances of it passing, as well as what's in it as it exists now, and how does it differ from the Build Back Better Act that we were talking about late last year. We're going to talk about a court case where a taxpayer was told by a court their suit's being dismissed because they must file a 2020 income tax return in order to obtain economic impact payment that they claim was never sent to them by the IRS. Finally, we'll look at a warning from the IRS Security Summit to tax pros about significant security threats, two of them, to taxpayer data that's on their system, which we are reminded we have a responsibility to protect. So let's get started here, and let's take a look at the proposal in Congress. And at this point, we might get some tax provisions in a reconciliation bill. This week it was announced that Senators Manchin and Schumer announced that they had agreed, even though previously they announced they hadn't agreed. Now they're saying, okay, we, we did a deal now. And they have bill text has been released. So we've been able to see the bill that is proposed. As I record this on Sunday evening, they've not actually had a vote as of this point. So this is still speculative. And as always, until a tax bill is signed, basically passed by both houses and signed by the president, you don't want to go betting on a bill. You may remember that we've been surprised sometimes about things that we thought for sure were going to pass that didn't pass, or people tend to jump the gun anyway. A lot of people last year with the Build Back Better Act, you know, were just sure it was going to pass. There was no question in their mind. So they started even working out planning and started doing, in some cases, which was really unfortunate in some of those cases, uh, doing plans they were implementing because of things they thought would come in the Build Back Better Act. So as always, I will warn you, as Yogi Berra said, it ain't over till it's over. And that's triply true when we talk about legislation in Congress. So we're going to discuss what's in it because it is important to know what they're talking about. My guess is if it becomes law, it probably will pass here within the next week or so, or it simply isn't passing at all. I think this is probably the last realistic chance for this bill. The key hang-up at the moment is we have not heard if Senator Sinema from Arizona is actually going to support this bill or not. There is a provision in this bill that ends up taxing carried interest. More often, we'll tax that income as ordinary income as opposed to getting special lower capital gain rates. Carried interest, for those who are not aware, is where somebody basically contributes their services to a partnership, a partnership that maybe holds investment assets only, and they get a profits interest, which is a percent of that income. Obviously, they're the ones involved in managing the investment portfolio. But unlike a traditional investment manager, where that income you pay to an investment manager will normally be ordinary income to that person who's paid to manage, uh, to do management work for the portfolio. In this case, because this person is a partner who's getting a share of partnership income, they would be able to keep the attributes, which are capital gain style attributes, basically reducing their tax rate pretty significantly on that income. 
this bill would contain a provision just like they tried to put in the TCJ ended up getting very limited version in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. This would go back to that drawing board one more time and try to pass a provision that has more teeth in it. Senator Sinema had opposed such a provision in the Build Back Better Act, and in fact, the provision had been pulled from the Build Back Better Act when they were negotiating with her and with Senator Manchin about trying to get their votes for that. So there is still some question, and as far as I've heard so far, she still has not committed, she's studying the bill, quote-unquote, per her staff, as to whether or not she plans to vote for it this week. That's the one that could throw a monkey wrench works. I think that's the most significant chance that you'll see this thing essentially shot out of the sky would be if she basically held her ground and refused to vote in favor of it on this issue. This is possible, I'd say, and I would say her, her negotiating stand or her negotiating strength is going to be tougher or more significant than others. And we'll talk about a set whose negotiating strength probably has evaporated simply because, and this is the key deal this late date, is she willing to live with the total failure of not getting anything in this bill as opposed to having the bill pass this way? If you are willing to accept total failure, you have a lot better negotiating position if your vote's needed than if you're in a position where you really don't want to be the one responsible for killing the bill. So your threats to not vote for it kind of become, they ring hollow. Now, as I noted already, this is likely the last real chance we're going to see a reconciliation bill. Technically, this is the budget for the year that ends September 30th of this year. And Congress is about to go back out on recess. Uh, at this point, they're not going to be around a whole lot more days before the election. And certainly not a whole lot more days before September 30. There's going to be a limited number of legislative days in play. And the theory is if they can't get this done before they leave, there's a real good chance they're simply not getting this done. It will be a the equivalent of 2017's failed reconciliation package on repeal and replace of Obamacare. You may remember that. John McCain uh, in, you know, famously put his thumbs down to basically be the no vote that killed the bill. It's kind of interesting that yet again we have an Arizona senator who apparently could come in, put thumbs down, and kill the bill. So we'll see what it goes on. But anyway, reconciliation packages, depending upon getting an Arizona senator to vote for them, have been eh, kind of iffy, so, so we'll see how that goes. The other side, and this is a group that probably doesn't have any real negotiating pull. There were a number of members of the House who were threatening that if the reconciliation package did not have some sort of repeal of the SALT cap, or at least some significant relief for the SALT cap, that they would withhold their votes. And if all of them did, there were enough of them who had threatened to do this that it would kill the bill. But here's the problem. At this point, that group has probably realized that there's really no way they're getting what they want. Now remember, Senator Cinema, if she just doesn't want the carried interest rules changed and she holds out on the bill and doesn't vote for it, she does get that. If these guys hold out for it, the SALT cap is still the SALT cap. So whether they vote for it or against it, the SALT cap is the SALT cap. And it seems unlikely that you're going to get it through the Senate. If you don't, re if you don't recall, 
the salt cap provision that the House had kind of worked out and built back better, not only had opposition from Joe Manchin, who still indicates he's against, uh, you know, giving any changes there, but we also had Bernie Sanders, who wasn't thrilled by it. And, you know, there were various other structures in there. So my guess is salt cap changes aren't going to make it through the Senate period. So now there's been some statements by some of the members of the, you know, no, no salt, no salt relief, no deal uh, group that have essentially backed off and said, OK, yeah, we, we, we can vote for this thing. I mean, you got to get realistic here. When you're a group, when you want change, that's the other tough part. If you want change, you can't afford to have a failure. But you might not be able to get change any way, shape, or form. And again, because there's an election, because there is a significant chance in that election that control of the House and Senate changes, it means that these guys are not going to see salt cap relief almost for certain for at least another two years after this, regardless of which way they vote on this. So my guess is that's not going to be a big problem if it clears the Senate. Now, this proposed Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, uh, July 27th was the date that we got the agreement. And at the end of that day, the text of the proposed bill came out. So that is the name of it. And before somebody calls me out on it, I will say, I will give you the names of the bills exactly as they are written. I will never say they actually do what they say. Uh, as I say, I have a few clients who, after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, saw their taxes go up, and about 20% of taxpayers did that, who really wondered about, well, I thought it was a tax cut and Jobs Act. Why is it, you know, why, why are my taxes going up in some cases significantly? It's because, well, it didn't say everybody got a tax cut, right? You know, I'm sure prices will mediate on something at some point in the future that they could argue that this had something to do with. So, you know, whatever. Just don't don't put too much in this. It's you always have a good marketing title. There will be forty five billion dollars extra to beef up IRS enforcement. This is important because obviously spending forty five billion dollars at the IRS on examination work is almost certainly going to bring in far more, like many multiples of forty five billion dollars. So the concept is that this would be a money raiser. We told you already about the carried interest provision. But we're also going to have a 15% minimum tax for corporations on adjusted financial statement income. Now, as always, that whole term of adjusted financial statement income means that there are complex rules. This only applies at this point to businesses that average over $1 billion of income over the prior three years. So not something most of my clients are going to worry about. They generally aren't C-Corps, and even those that are C-Corps don't show net income of over a billion dollars. So my businesses are pretty safe from this one. This one's going to mainly go after large public companies. And honestly, the whole reason for doing this is because of those headlines where, you know, businesses like Amazon who, you know, show this income, they say on financial statements that they go to the market with and they, you know, their stock price is pumped up based on all this income they're reporting. And then the news breaks, they paid no taxes. Congress doesn't like those stories, never has. So this is a way to try to deal with that by imposing a 15% minimum tax on adjusted financial statement income, which tells you right off that there's still going to be various exceptions and special cases and messy. And if you have to deal with this, yes, it will be messy. Certainly if this is, if you're in corporate tax and you're dealing with this for a business, 
you probably want to, as soon as you hear it's passed both houses uh, and the president, I'm pretty sure this time the president's going to sign it. I, I, I know we got we got a little, you know, shall, shall we say jump the gun? Some people did back on the uh, 2022 or 2020 bill, I should say. The CAA, the CAA, right, the Comprehensive Appropriations Act of 2020, when then-President Trump was going to sign it and then suddenly announced he wouldn't and then suddenly later announced he would. This time, I don't think we're going to go through that. I don't, I don't see President Biden deciding that he's not going to sign it, then suddenly changing his mind and signing it. But in any event, you know, we, we, we do expect it's got to get through both houses but as soon as it does, if you're into corporate tax, I would certainly spend some time going through all of the details. This thing goes on for a lot of pages. It seems to be very similar to what was in the Build Back Better Act, but I haven't actually dug in detail to see if there were significant changes from the minimum tax proposed in the Build Back Better Act that was going to be based on financial statement income. But my guess is it's probably somewhere in there. So if you looked at that, that's probably a good starting point for what kind of impact you this could have. We would extend the enhanced premium tax credit through 2025. If you remember under the, uh, you know, basically under the American Rescue Plan Act for two years, we got rid of the 400% cap, 400% uh, of the poverty line cap on claiming a credit for premiums as long as they cost you more than 8.5% of your income. You could still get the premium if the second lowest cost, the second, was it the second lowest cost silver plan on the exchange available to you in your location demanded more than 8.5% of your income. Now, obviously, if you are, let's say if he wasn't subject, eligible for Medicare, Warren Buffett, you know, I doubt that he would face a greater than 8.5% of his income premium. So obviously it's not really, it's open to everybody, but it does mean that that cliff's not there. That cliff is a major problem. Cliffs are a major problem that I hate in all tax laws. Congress discovered years ago that a way you could make something less expensive was to do phase outs. And those phase outs could be proportionate over a time period, or they could be cliffs. And cliffs had the nice idea of being simple but they're wildly unfair. You have one extra dollar and you go from what might be a significant credit where what you were asked to pay was much more than 8.5% of your income, which was more than 400% of the poverty level to nothing by simply having that extra dollar of income. So if you now we can talk about the policy side and whether the credit should be there at all or not to me, but that's a different issue than the mess that is made when you have cliffs and when you have phase outs. I would feel much better if Congress got rid of a bunch of the breaks that, that they put cliffs and phase outs on and instead implemented whatever ones they really think are important in a way without the cliffs and phase outs like this particular credit. Obviously, since it's a percentage of income, it kind of naturally phases out because your premium doesn't really depend on your income. Your premium depends on your age and health status. So it's like, you know, in essence, it's kind of a natural phase out built in. You don't need the cliff. The cliff just causes us problems. In any event, that would be extended through 2025. And obviously, once you do this a couple of times, it tends to become part of extender packages. 
So this could be a backdoor way of making this permanent. I'll warn you about that. Even if a future Congress was under total Republican control with a Republican president, do not be surprised if this got extended. Because if it stayed around for what's essentially going to be five years, any Congress that gets rid of it will be passing a tax increase. And that's not something that Congresses like to say they're doing in most cases, you know, especially tax increases like this. So this is kind of a backdoor way to make it permanent without having to pay the piper of dealing with the cost of doing so. But that's a traditional trick Congress uses. Okay, we're also going to get some new electric vehicle credits and we're going to uh, do a couple things. They're, they're new, they're extended with changes and I think that's the way we'd look at. There's going to be a special $4,000 credit for used electric vehicles. Okay, we're starting to get those on the market. The idea being if you want to encourage people to buy those, you would, you're would you going to give them a credit even though it's used. Let's be honest, the other thing this does is propped up the prices for used electric vehicles. So that, that's going to be a side effect automatically of doing it, which I guess if you own a Tesla that you're going to be looking to get rid of, it's probably not a bad thing that we pump this up somewhat. There will also be the $7,500 credit for new vehicles to be put back in. And it will remove the unit sales cap. So that, that's a big thing if you are looking at wanting to buy an electric vehicle. Uh, but as has happened with a lot of them that have been popular, by now they're way over the caps. This would theoretically allow Teslas to come back in. However, there's going to be a little problem that will affect especially the higher end Teslas. And that is that there will be a cap on the price of the vehicle. And there is going to be a limitation on income that also will impact this credit. So that's important. So the income and price limits are things that you have to get used to. It is a different electric vehicle credit. You know, your clients maybe who bought those Teslas in the past and thinking, hey, I want a new one right now and they're going to, the, the credit will now come for Teslas again. So let's go. Uh, don't run out right away until you read the details of this one and make sure your client's income is low enough to qualify you know, and may, or at least whatever they'll get if we phase it out, you know, and make, make sure the price of the vehicle they're looking at is within line of what will qualify for this. So again, interesting aside with that, we have a couple of other energy credits in place. Uh, those energy credits uh, for homes, as I understand the provisions in the bill, we're going to get rid of the lifetime cap take it to an annual cap of $1,200 per year instead of that lifetime 500 cap that we had before. So that means that your energy improvements, energy efficiency items for your home, there will be credits for that. I'm not sure if that's good news or bad news because it used to be, you know, the fact that these things phased out in all their categories so quickly was that, you know, they these credits have been around for a long time and you figure most clients have probably used it at some point, so you didn't need to worry about it. Now, of course, if they can use it every year, definitely will take no time for those in the home improvement industry to figure out to start marketing that point to people. So we'll see that going on, right? We'll, we'll see those things in here. Now, there are far fewer provisions in this bill than we're in the Build Back Better Act. And so there are many, many fewer provisions. And the provisions pretty much that we haven't talked about here yet well, those provisions will not be, you know, are basically not in this bill. And why that's important is, in case you're worried about the fact that, you know, wait, we had this billionaire's tax and we had all of these other things and maybe losing, 
you know, losing the uh, backdoor IRA, Roth IRA idea. All those things are basically gone from here. So pretty much it's a much more restricted and limited bill. Obviously, if we actually get this bill, I will start working up some. I'm still trying to get a decision if this bill is actually big enough now to justify doing some webinars on it or not. Again, I'll take a look. We'll see when this thing passes, if it passes, and we'll take a look at it. But I'll put it this way. I think even if you did a webinar on this bill, it's going to be tough getting it beyond about an hour. I, I think, honestly, an hour webinar on this thing may be as far as you can stretch it unless I'm missing something big. So I do plan to dig through it, though, if it passes and take a look, and we'll talk about that stuff there. Okay, let's talk about now a couple of cases this week. The first case is Shaw versus Yellen. This is a case from the United States District Court for the Central District of Illinois. It's case number 1-22-CV-01012. It came down on July the 22nd. This is a taxpayer who got a letter from the IRS in early 2021 saying they were going to get a $600 essentially economic you know, the economic impact payment, whatever that was, incentive payment, whatever the EIP, I remember that was what we called it, but it was your advance on the credit on your 2020 return. Now, if you remember that program, the IRS had to pay those out very, very quickly. And if they had, if they didn't get it paid out by, I believe it was finally the end of January was the date, that at that point, they couldn't pay any more out. If it hadn't been paid by that date, and, you know, you just wouldn't get it. But this guy got a letter saying that they had given it, they sent him a debit card or had deposited into a bank account this $600. He claims he never saw the $600. So he did write the IRS about this. You know, they said contact them. So he did. And not surprising probably to anybody listening to this who's had to try to contact the IRS recently. All he had gotten since he wrote them in 2021 was essentially an IRS bill that said, yeah, we'll, we'll get back to you, right? You know, we, we've received your letter. You know, we, we will contact you again in 45 days. And as of course, the IRS has not contacted him, not sent him any more information. And so, you know, he's kind of stuck. So he's looking at this like, wait, I had $600. I was supposed to have it. You told me I was supposed to have it and I didn't get it. And now you won't talk to me, right? And I'm sure if he tried to call the phone, that went nowhere as well. So bottom line, he decides to file suit in U.S. District Court to try to get his $600. Now, as you might guess, a $600 claim for money, this guy is not going to court represented by legal counsel because legal counsel would chew up the $600 refund claim. You know, at about, you know, 30 minutes into the first meeting, we would probably be at the point where the charge was more than the $600 refund claim. So He's representing himself in court, and these things always get a little weird when it goes that way. And But there was one problem which the court pointed out. As I said, the IRS was not allowed to issue checks after early 2021. So what the law provided, remember, this was just an advance on your refundable credit. The refundable, you know, recovery rebate credit. This is part two on your 2020 return. And you may remember, you claimed this on the 2020 return. So what you had to do, and this is what the court point out is, 
you really need to file a 2020 return if you didn't receive the payment. In fact, the way the law is written, even if he gets the IRS to respond to him now, the only things they could tell him is we actually paid it. Then in theory, he could get it, re he could get it reissued maybe, or more likely they'll tell him that it wasn't issued. And if it wasn't issued, then they'd refund. So in either extent, if he files a claim for refund and he claims the credit, he'll either get a notice saying it was already paid and then he can go down that path or he's going to get a he's going to just get the money. So as the court pointed out, first thing he needs to do is file with the IRS for the refund, you know, file the return, claim the 600. And then after the IRS denies him, you know, if they deny it, then you would, of course, go through and file amended a formal claim. And if the IRS turned you down there after you exhaust administrative remedies, then and only then could you file the suit in the U.S. District Court. So saying you're a little bit issues. So the court dismissed his case right now. They did, you know, they, they allowed him. Initially, they did one once before and allowed him to amend. He said, well, wait, wait, because they said he hadn't filed a return. He said, but I filed a 2019 return. Now, if you remember how that rule worked, if you filed a 2019 return, but not a 20 return, the IRS, well, you couldn't have filed a 20 return yet because the time hadn't come to file that. So if you filed a 2019 return, they were they used that to compute the amount to pay you. And he had filed a 19 return. But as the court said, that's irrelevant. You have to have filed a 20 return because you didn't understand what it was telling you. If, if, if you're saying you didn't get this payment, and if that's correct, then realistically, you need to file a claim with the IRS by saying it was never paid. And even though you don't normally file a return, maybe you don't have to in any other way, that was, as the IRS told uh, everybody in a news release when the program, when they said, we're not sending any more checks from now on, you know, we're done now, all, all checks are out. They noted that, you know, if you didn't get a check and you should have, you would have to file a 2020 return even if you're not otherwise required to file one. That's how you'd end up getting it. So, as we said in this case, now, do I understand why this taxpayer can't understand? He's got a letter from the IRS saying, you you know, they owe him 600 bucks. He didn't get 600 bucks. He tried to do what they asked him to and contact them. And they basically have, at least in his mind, just totally ignored him. He doesn't know. There's nothing personal. He totally ignores every, they totally ignore everybody about it at this point. But hey, you know, what, what can I say? That, that, that's the way things are going right now. In any event, he says, you know, so he filed suit. He figured, well, what I have to do is I have to go to court and file suit against this because they owe me money, right? Somebody says, I owe you money. Somebody owes you money and they don't pay you. You take them to court, right? As the court says, it's a little more complicated on taxes. There is that rule of exhausting administrative remedies, and there's a little problem of sovereign immunity that says generally you can only sue the government to the extent the government allows itself to be sued. So you do have to follow all of the rules to get there. Finally, let's consider an IRS news release that came out on the 26th. News release is entitled Security Summit Warns Tax Pros of Evolving Email and Cloud-Based Schemes to Steal Taxpayer Data. This is News Release 2022-143, as I said, issued on July the 26th. Now, the news release makes it very clear that every tax professional has a duty to secure their networks to protect confidential taxpayer information. 
That is a duty imposed on you. There are definite and significant liabilities if you do not follow through on that. So reminding that the IRS said, we want to talk to you about a couple of threats we're seeing now that are fairly significant. The first one they talked about is spear phishing, a targeted spear phishing campaign, right? That is, you know, looking for uh, tax professionals to try to get their data. The IRS explains, in case you don't know what it is, that a phishing campaign is an attempt to send you an email, text message, something of that sort, contact you in some way, and convince you to do something. In this case, they say for these particular campaigns, they're going to probably want to convince you to download a document. Okay, We're looking here at the new client spear phishing campaign for tax professionals. And I'm sure most of you have received these emails. If you haven't, the way this works, and they point out, usually any of these campaigns are in a lot of cases to either tempt you with new work, right? Or to get you invested. And what the IRS talks about is currently these campaigns are going a little further than just initially it'd be, hey, I'm looking for a new accountant, you know, my accountant retired, whatever died, whatever happened to their accountant. And they, they got your name from Alice. Now, the catch is you automatically may know there's something wrong because you don't know an Alice. So how would they have gotten your name from Alice? But anyway, whatever, there's a decent chance they'll try to claim a common enough name so that there's a decent chance. They never tell you Alice who. Um, you know, all of those things. And many times they would just attach the email, the stuff to it. Well, they've discovered that CPAs got onto that. So what the program would start doing now is sending out just a blank email, just a straightforward email that had no attachments and no, no links to click on to get the CPA to engage with that person and invest time discussing their tax situation. Now, what you're going to get back is obviously a canned response, but the theory is that if we have them do two or three emails in a row, and then finally, when you say, okay, send your data, then they will basically drop in the package that they want to have downloaded on your network. As the IRS says, generally this package contains a remote access Trojan or rat. It's kind of as, as welcome as a rat in your building. So what the remote access Trojan does is allow them to essentially run, log into your systems, generally at night when nobody's there, log into and run your machine. And what they'll want to do is attempt to go in. And usually the way this works is they go in and take a look at returns on your system. They will find returns ready to be sent in. They will then just potentially, sometimes all they do is change the bank account numbers on them and hope nobody notices. Okay, change the bank account numbers, re-export to, you know, whatever the service is for electronic filing, and then have it sit there and wait for the client's authorization to come back in and you just send it up with the wrong bank account numbers. They could decide to kind of go faster than that and simply submit returns automatically there, maybe help yourself to everything. But in any event, use that as a refund fraud situation. Obviously, that's a problem. The other thing they said, they're also seeing it in some cases, there will be ransomware in the package. 
And what that would normally do is they realize they'll probably be caught here eventually, right? They'll, they'll, you'll, you'll notice the problem. You'll shut it down. So what if they're a little smarter, what they do is that, that they would file off their fraudulent returns. And then before they, you know, and before they figure they'll get caught, then suddenly they will independently have this thing trigger the ransomware structure and maybe export client data too, just for fun for ID theft. Uh, but they'll do that and then, you know, you need to pay up in Bitcoin or whatever other virtual currency in order to get access back to your files. Now, of course, the FBI will tell you you shouldn't pay that, but they'll also tell you they can't help you get your data. So, by the way, you should have backups That's, and backups that aren't online that they can encrypt the same time they encrypt your main stuff, right? You'd like to have some offline backups that you could drop back to if need be, just bottom line on that. The other thing the IRS pointed out, they talked about the growth of cloud systems. Now, you know, I know a lot of CPAs say, oh, well, I, I don't trust that at all. We don't use cloud because that's obviously a security awful thing. No way we don't use it. I'm sitting here as a tax CPA. I'm sitting here as somebody who knows, you know, who's been doing tax for quite a while. And I'm looking at the real world for tax processing these days and in compliant in compliance work and the like. And I'm thinking you're using a cloud service. You're just not thinking correctly because you think cloud service meanings, you know, means like going out to something like right networks or one of those places and have them load your stuff there, maybe using CCH access, right? Uh, or Onvio from Thomson Reuters and those sorts of things. But even if you don't, even if your tax software is fully loaded on your local network, odds are you're using cloud services still because think about how you electronically file a return. You know, we've used over the years, uh, CCH Pro System FX, we've used, Tom, you know, Thomson Reuters Ultratax. In all cases and through this day, we have that stuff installed on our local server. We are not cloud-based. We're not into, we're not access. We're not using the cloud-based version of Ultratax. But nevertheless, when we go to electronically file a return, in either of those packages, what you do is you upload the software to a server controlled by the vendor. And then when the client finally says, oh yeah, go ahead, you can submit my return. Then at that point, we effectively give the go ahead. Now actually with CCH, you upload first. With Thomson Reuters, you don't really upload until you have the authorization. But in both cases, you're going through an outside service provider, right? Who receives the data and then performs the process on your behalf. That's a cloud system. Also, most of us, and if you ever tried to run your own mail server, you quickly discovered why it's not a good idea. Your server is going to be inundated with spam and spammers are going to try to take over your server as a relay. And all of that is incredibly difficult to combat and set up your systems and control. So most, even large companies are, you know, go ahead and they set up their email systems quite often via Microsoft, Google, one of those operations. I know some very large companies that, yeah, are, you know, they're hosted Outlook or they're hosted, uh, they're hosted Google apps. It's just the way they work. It, it, it's their system. So 
a lot of you are you almost certainly using hosted email, which also has a lot of potentially issues. So cloud services are a problem. The Security Summit strongly recommends that you use multi-factor authentication. Multi-factor authentication, which I've heard a lot of CPAs complain about, is where when you try to log into the system, not only do you have to give your username and password generally, that's one factor, but then you also have to provide some sort of code. Now that code could be generated by a application on your device. We could have a you know an app on our phone on a device meaning a phone normally we could have an app on our phone that the server that we're logging or you know that the system we're logging into will send a will send a message to for us to click on there that yes we authorize access and go that route or it could be sent as a sms text message right to the phone now gang the text messages are the riskiest option of all I try to avoid ever, ever, ever using SMS text messaging as a multi-factor authentication step unless I have no other choice. SMS as to as a second factor, multi-factor, as a factor in a multi-factor authentication program is better than no multi-factor, but it's far weaker than the apps. The apps are, and the problem is SMS messaging is exposed to uh, essentially what's called SIM swapping, where somebody convinces T-Mobile, Verizon, AT&T, whoever, that they're you and they've lo- and you lost your SIM and your spouse is going to kill you. You know, you need to get that fixed. So they go ahead and they give you a brand new SIM to take over the phone number you had before. Once that SIM goes in their phone and is put on the network, they're going to get all of your SMS messages. So you won't necessarily know anything's happened except for a day or so. Your phone's going to go very quiet. You probably discover you can't call out on it and, you know, the Internet doesn't work. Well, so, you know, at first you're going to think, dang it, you know, can't believe my phone carrier is so flaky and these don't work. It could be your phone carrier is working just fine. It's just they've given somebody else a SIM for you. So that's the idea. Why multi-factor works best is, remember that rat that gets in your system? And like a lot now, our tax software these days, even if it's hosted on network, I still have to do a login that gets authenticated back to the server for Thomson Reuters. I got to provide the code. The rat, the guy running the rat program, that person's not going to have the multi-factor authentication. When that comes up and says, put the code in, uh, they're not going to have the program. Now, the caveat with that is, of course, that in many cases, it may automatically trigger, like the Thompson Reuter Authenticator will. You know, it'll, it'll suddenly beep on my phone and say, you know, do you authorize this coming in? Be very careful about it. Never, ever, ever click the yes to that prompt unless you're the one that kicked it in. That's rule number one. Now, is multi-factor perfect? No. It's open to what's called replay attacks. But they tend to be a little more involved and there's a lot better low-hanging fruit to get in other places. But if somebody's really after you, you can combine phishing in a manner to take over the multi-factor authentication. If it is a code being sent, I need your code. And let's say, and I can't get your SIM or you're not using SMS. 
So now I need you to, and the only way to get the code is that app running on your phone. Well, what you do is use a phishing email that looks like Thomson Reuters or CCH or Intuit is sending you some sort of message saying, oh, there's been a problem with your account. Please log in. They, they build a front page that looks just like the standard page for Intuit, Thompson Reuters, for CCH. You put in your username and password, which, hey, if you didn't have that before, they get that now. And then as soon as they're prompted or their system sets this up automated, as soon as the prompt comes from Intuit, Thompson Reuters, or CCH to enter that number that you need, they'll just take the number from you and enter it. Or if you're being nice, and as I said, that's why it's so spear phishing. If it does just prompt you like the Thompson Reuters Authenticator does, well, since you think it's a legit login, you'll immediately click yes. Now, they'll send back an error message to you, but you just gave them the access to the system. So again, always, it's multi-factor is not perfect. There are ways around it. It's just a level of things to make it tougher. Make sure you need to be aware. The one thing I'll say about the Security Summit items it is your responsibility. You cannot outsource it. By that I mean, yes, you can hire a security person. Maybe you probably should in your firm. And they can help you harden your systems. But ultimately, all of that is worthless if nobody hardens the staff and especially the partners. By that I mean, they have to have training. They have to understand how people would try to get them because as long as you go through and just walk through it and give the other party what they want, it doesn't matter all the wonderful security systems that you paid the outside consultant to put in your system. They won't stop a darn thing. Because as long, you know, if the partner in charge of the office gives them the keys to the kingdom, they got the keys to the kingdom. So it is important that everybody understand these issues and understand how it works. This has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of August the 1st, 2022. We are into August already. Wow. Uh, as always, this is brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. Uh, if you have any questions, I'm at, you can find me at edzollers at currentfelltaxdevelopments.com. I also hang around the Connect forums for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois, Washington, and the discussion board that Idaho Society has. So remember, if any of those societies, you can post on those locations, and hopefully I'll see the message and can respond. Uh, otherwise, I'm looking at what's happening. As I said, we may have a tax bill, and if we do, we'll consider if there's some option to doing some sort of presentation. But as I say, I think this bill is relatively small, so we'll, we'll see what sense, if any, it makes and also how quickly it comes out so we can get at that. But we might be doing something. Certainly, if nothing else, we're going to do something here on this program to discuss how this new law. In any event, I'll see you here next week as we talk about current federal tax developments.